This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Our guest today is Omar Saif Kobash, the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to Russia. Uh, Omar, thank you so much for joining us today at Knowledge thank at Wharton. You. Thank you. Well, considering that you, uh, you know, have come from the UAE and everyone who's thinking about the Middle East these days is concerned about what's happening with terrorism. We hear news reports all the time about one yet more, one more beheading by ISIS. I, I wonder how you see the situation from your perspective uh, or from the region. Sure. I think... Uh yeah, we're, we're all uh, obviously very concerned about the uh, most recent developments with uh, the development of ISIS. Uh, and I think, um, in, in a sense, ISIS uh, has, has um, presented a real uh, development, uh, kind of a qualitative, uh, in a negative sense, development of extremism in the region. Uh, uh, the fact that they seem to have what looks like an army uh, um, revenues uh, from oil. Uh, and uh, what's probably the most dangerous thing about them is that they have a very, very uh, attractive, uh, reductive view of uh, how Islam should pro progress. Uh, and one of the worries is also um, that in the realm of ideas, um, they provide uh, all the correct references. Uh, and so that in a sense, they legitimize themselves by making references that are very, very common in the Muslim world about the caliphate, about, uh, um, about fighting uh, in both the Persian Empire uh, um, through Baghdad and Iran, and then the West, presumably representing a historical Rome. Uh, and so in, in a sense, they're playing uh, to all of the kind of um, uh, themes uh, that, that we, we, we've been educated in. So that, that's what's extremely worrying. Um, uh, the other thing that I think is of, of, of interest is that most of the public debate about ISIS has been what I think is tactical, um, how to bomb them out of existence. Uh, and this is going to take many, many years uh, when I think really the strategic aim should be uh, a, global, uh, a global issue, uh, an issue for Muslims and an issue for, for the Arabs, to think about the set of ideas and, the, um, the, as I said, the reductive uh, interpretations of our own history. Uh, and our belief system, which have led to this. So how do we do that? If you want to take the strategic view, what is the correct response, both for uh, governments in the Western world and mm. for countries in the region? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognize uh, that there is uh, a strategic element that hasn't been addressed, which is the realm of ideas. Um, and we've heard about it ever since September 11th, that the realm of ideas is where the, the battles really need to be fought. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I've continually personally been very interested in where this is going. And so we often hear about moderate Islam, moderate Muslims, and I regard myself as a, as a moderate Muslim. Um, and there's frequently calls on moderate Muslims to stand up and, and, and say something. Uh, and that's pretty much where it ends. So moderate Muslims will appear on television, on news uh, broadcasts, and they will make an appeal to other moderate Muslims to say something. But they themselves don't say anything. So in a sense, I think uh, we moderate Muslims have done Islam a disservice by not providing a, a, a clear framework for uh, young men and women, whether they're in the West or in Indonesia or in the Arab world, to really deal with um, the problems of modernity, uh, uh, the um, existential 
social crisis that uh, young men will, will, will face when they haven't got a job or they haven't got a wife or they haven't got you know, any opportunities. So how, how, how do we take Islam as this moderate force and provide sustenance to them rather than uh, providing uh, an extremist version uh, of, of Islam that, that, uh, that um, satisfies their anger and their, and their uh, need for um, vengeance of some sort? So I think we need to really tackle that. Um, and there have been a couple of attempts. Um, for example, recently there was a, a conference, uh, Peace in Islam, uh, and that took place in Abu Dhabi, and it was under the uh, um, uh, organization of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So we had um, Islamic uh, clergy, theologians, uh, thinkers from across the Middle East, uh, and they got together and they, they did have this two-day conference. Um, but the, the, the question is, are they able to really tackle uh, the issues of Arab uh, and uh, Muslim youth? Uh, now, I'm somewhat sort of hesitant about uh, giving them 100% uh, uh, on that. I think that w w perhaps it's time for uh, uh, people of goodwill, um, young men and women who are concerned about uh, where their religion is taking them, uh, to start thinking for themselves outside of you know, theological circles and outside of religious authority, to begin to really think of uh, how we can um, in interpret uh, our, our traditional Islam into modern terms. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously what, what you're saying about the, the war at the level of ideas, uh, yeah. if you can call it that, or at least a debate at the level of ideas, mm. is extremely important. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you believe that the situation, especially with ISIS, and I'm not singling them out with other aspects of uh, you know, extremist yeah. thinking, have gone beyond the realm of just debate and, and need some sort of a political or even military solution? And if so, what should that be? Well, I, I wasn't suggesting that uh, uh, there shouldn't be uh, tactical solutions uh, for, for the short term, or whether they're military or, or other. Uh, but what, what is worrying is that ISIS, um, in a sense, represents a breakthrough for extremism. Yes. Uh, and uh, they, in their ideology, do not actually differ that much from other, other groups uh, who are often called moderate uh, by the Western press, uh, who have the same goals, uh, the same intentions, uh, but who are uh, described as being more pragmatic, uh, ready to make compromises with the present, um, um, who we within the Arab and Muslim community know that um, they actually have precisely the same, same goals, uh, which, which is essentially uh, intolerant in and, and it's a very narrow worldview. So I'm not saying that you, know, you, you shouldn't uh, tackle uh, the phenomenon of uh, violent extremism right now. Absolutely. Any thoughts on how it should be tackled at the tactical level? No, to be honest. And I, I prefer not to think about that because I don't have a, any kind of security or military background that would allow me to, to understand really what's happening on the, on the ground. So I but what, What's the one thing about this ISIS phenomenon that uh, hasn't been clearly understood by the Western world, which it is very important for them to understand? I think uh, there are probably two things. The first thing is that ISIS is a Sunni movement within Iraq, essentially. Uh, and in, a, in terms of the battle between Sunni and Shia Islam, uh, it's very difficult for the Sunni world to say no. Uh, and condemn 100%. Uh, I think it's, that, this is one of the key kind of problems that I, I find we, we, we face. It's, um, we are faced with an, an ethical problem and a political problem. 
And uh, in the case of ISIS, I think uh, essentially the political overshadows the ethical. Um, and so we have a problem in that there is this perception that um, the, the Iranian influence over the region is growing uh, and that uh, the Sunnis of uh, Iraq gen have genuine grievances. And these are the kind of the warriors of the, the, the Sunni uh, group. So that's, that's one of the key uh, problems that, that needs to be resolved. Now, do you resolve that um, politically by having an inclusive government uh, in Iraq? Well, that's one uh, possible approach. Um, but I think the, the, the deeper and the wider issue there is that um, perhaps we should begin to think at a global level of a grand reconciliation between the Sunnah and the Shia, um, because we at least uh, at the level of, of leadership, uh, whether religious or political leadership in the region, uh, have not succeeded to, to reconcile ourselves with each other. Um, and so that's one thing that I think is really very important for the global uh, community to, to, to look at this issue and, and wonder whether it is, um, it is appropriate for uh, 1.1 billion Sunni Muslims and 300 million Shia Muslims to be uh, so divided. Um, so I think that, that's, that's one key issue that needs to be resolved. You know, it, it's sometimes said it's very dangerous to make predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, agreed. Uh, uh, but how do you think the situation will play out over the next, say, 12 to 24 months? Uh, I'd, I'd prefer to go a little further than that, if that's okay. okay. Uh, I'm uh, actually very optimistic um, uh, about the situation because I think one of the issues is that in, in our part of the world, we generally try to paper over differences. And when the differences are uh, now etched in blood, um, it becomes very, very clear what the consequences of our differences are. Um, and it also becomes very clear uh, what the implications of our beliefs are. Uh, and I think that there is um, a great deal of interest, uh, at least amongst uh, the youth of the Arab world, to see uh, a, a better future. Um, it's pretty clear um, that mass ex executions of your enemies is not the way forward. So I'm actually optimistic about the future in the, in the Middle East. Great. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that, uh, Omar. Uh, given your role as the ambassador to Russia, yeah. uh, you also... Uh, have you know very interesting insights? I'm sure about the situation in that country, uh, yeah. and especially you know the way things are going with uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of people uh, all around the world mm -hmm. have been very concerned about that situation and what it might mean uh, uh, in geopolitical terms. I'd yes. be very interested to hear your analysis of the situation, and again, how yeah. do you think it will play out? Interesting. Uh, my analysis is going to be piecemeal. Um, I, in a, in a sense, I'm caught between two worlds, um, having a sort of a, a British education and being exposed to um, uh, the, the West in a, in a direct manner, uh, and then also having Russian roots. Uh, uh, my, my mother is Russian. So I, 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 uh, I'm almost given an inside track on how people are, are thinking there, at least at, at the level of kind of political decision making. So it's, it's very interesting to see how uh, how misunderstood different people can be. Uh, it's also interesting to see how little they listen to each other uh, and how ego plays uh, a role in many, uh, many conflicts. Uh, and, you know, as, as a result, I become uh, very interested in the role of uh, the shameless ambassador uh, who can, you know, uh, take a beating from both sides but try to uh, see how people can understand each other. Uh, the, the, the view from Russia uh, on the Ukraine 
uh, is obviously it's colored by the historical relationship to the Ukraine. It's colored also by the, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and the promise that NATO wouldn't expand. Uh, and and the, it's for my Russian colleagues and my Russian friends, it's very difficult to see um, Russians and Ukrainians actually fighting. It's actually um, deeply upsetting. Yes. Uh, even you know, even at the level of decision makers, it's actually they they talk about it as brothers fighting, and they are very upset um, that that they know that the relationship will never be the way it used to be with the Ukraine. They also see it in purely geopolitical terms. I.e., they translate Western interest in the Ukraine uh, from a geopolitical um, uh, standpoint. Um, so that that's also very interesting. Let's assume that we had in this room uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Obama, <laughs> and both of them are turning to you for advice on, on what they should do next. What would you tell them? I would tell them to watch the uh, um, Kissinger Charlie Rose interview. He got it pretty, pretty, pretty straight, which is leave the Ukraine, uh, come to some kind of agreement, don't ask the Ukraine to take sides, uh, and just essentially postpone uh, the Day of Judgment. Great. Well, uh, from, from, from the Middle East and from Russia, wonder if we could turn now uh, to, to the UAE, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and especially some of the educational initiatives yes. over there. Uh, I, I know that you personally were involved in, in helping, uh, you know, some institutions, uh, yeah. you know, move to the, 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 the UAE. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about how you see the educational needs of the region uh, today sure. and how they will evolve over the next few years? Well, you know, again, after September 11th, there was this great interest, global interest, in the educational systems of the Middle East and the Muslim world. Uh, there's some big sort of criticisms of rote learning and, and uh, you know, uh, not having a policy or of, of inquiry, basically, not encouraging inquiry. Uh, and so governments in the region took up uh, the opportunity to invest a tremendous amount of money into education. Now, um, it, I'm... I, I criticize only from the point of view that I think we could always do better. Uh, and the situation I see today is that we have uh, a, num a large number of sort of vocational technical colleges, colleges that focus on business, on, on, on creating these opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, which is all, all very useful and very interesting. But what I've always wanted to see is a much broader education. So um, you, you, you can have your engineering degree, but you need to be also informed by the social sciences, by philosophy, by history, uh, to be able to place your engineering uh, tradition within a context so that you know why you are building. It's not purely to create economic value or purely to reinvest the uh, proceeds of oil. And I think that's one of the problems that we've got at the moment is that uh, it, either whether it's in the Arabic language or whether it's in sort of English language education in the region, we don't look at history as a, a, a place of, of debate, uh, of uh, opinion, of uh, proof and evidence. Uh, we, we have these Again, reductive histories. Mm. Um, and so you have a checklist of facts, uh, selective facts, that are supposedly um, to help you uh, orient yourself in the world. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the key problems. Now, why is a, a Western uh, educational uh, institution important? Uh, it's, uh, I, I remember being uh, told that this was a case of Western uh, intellectual imperialism. And my response to that was, at least they ask questions. 
And that's the most important thing about it. Uh, if, if, we, if we look at education as an opportunity to be fed opinions, then yes, it is imperialism. But if we are taught uh, the art of asking questions repeatedly, uh, then you've got an education. And that's why I still support um, uh, Western education in the region. Yeah, I think you're so right, because very often uh, people think about education as uh, you know, something that tells you what to think, rather yeah. than it should really be teaching you how to think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, uh, if you were to think about the, the role uh, of uh, education in the region uh, and collaboration with Western institutions, mm -hmm. how has the experience been and where do you think this could lead in the future? Uh, I, think, um, I think the experience has been broadly positive. Um, it's going to be interesting to, to begin to see these graduates then uh, fill uh, places, whether in government or in business, uh, in the region. Uh, one of the other things is that the Emirates uh, has tried to be a magnet for students from uh, in the surrounding region. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, in a sense, what it'll do is it'll create that kind of personal connectivity um, with, uh, let's be honest, elites from Iran or India, Pakistan, uh, Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Um, and to be able to have that kind of personal understanding uh, is going to be very, very important. I remember having a, a, a wonderful discussion some years ago with Sheikh Nahyan yeah. when he was education minister. Yeah. And I was always struck by one of the things he said, which is uh, when I asked him about the Festival of Thinkers, which yes. is one of the great initiatives you have in the UAE, yes. he said, we know that the oil is not going to last forever. Sure. And when that day comes, the only thing that will keep us competitive is the quality of human capital sure. that we have and that we are able to offer in the world. Do you think that process is, is going smoothly from your point of view? And if not, what yeah. are the primary obstacles that need to be dealt with? That's a very interesting question. You, you know, the, knowing that that is actually the policy of the government uh, and, and knowing that it actually it's a policy that uh, uh, that comes out of the nature of the um, the leadership of the Emirates, uh, where they actually value the individual is, is, is very important. Uh, what I think um, is happening is, again, we've got these very powerful forces within the Middle East and within Islamic thinking that are pulling kids to very simplistic interpretations of the world. Uh, and rather than, uh, you know, often I think, why would a jihadi or a suicide bomber go and do what he does or what she does? Um, and and I, at times I think that they're just very, very selfish uh, and lacking in responsibility. Now, they would think that actually they're, 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 they're selfless because they're giving their lives uh, and, and taking full responsibility. We're actually... Um, uh, Losing your life in jihad, uh, you know, in, in three months from now, is the easy way out. The tough one is to learn, face uh, daily uh, troubles, uh, uh, get married and have children. Bringing up children is unbelievably difficult. Uh, these are the true responsibilities, and this is the true challenge. I think that people need to refocus on. Uh, and, and that's what needs to be uh, raised up as a holy way of living, uh, rather than this whole idea of going off and blowing yourself up in the desert somewhere for, uh, as cannon fodder in somebody else's game. I think that's a great way to sort of come back to where we started in the beginning. Hmm. How, how do you think that message can be communicated most effectively to the youth of the region? 
I have to be honest, I think it's going to have to come from people speaking out and speaking, uh, I'm going to be honest, in, in the manner that I'm speaking to you today. Um, very often, uh, we, we have a, 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 we have a, res- a traditional respect for uh, somebody in a higher position, whether it's a job or, or in, in the community or uh, age. Uh, and so we don't have that kind of interaction. I think we need to get beyond that. Um, uh, you know, we've got uh, you know, people of my generation and, and, and the generation before me are, uh, educated and, and, and you know, well-traveled, uh, and there's absolutely no reason uh, to maintain that kind of patriarchal uh, uh, approach uh, to youth. Uh, and the reason I think that it's very important that we stop um, treating youth with distance is because there are recruiters out there who are making sure uh, that they grab those youth from us. And I think that's, that's the challenge. Omar, thank you so much for speaking to thank Knowledge Report. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.